Hi everyone. My name is Mbui. My name is Yana. And today in the Waking Up in South Africa podcast, we have a truly, truly special guest all the way from California. Her name is Tinisora, and we'll be engaging with her about social activism and how that looks under the lens of mindfulness. We are talking with Tinisora on the week of the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protests in America. And in South Africa, there are lots of talks about the death of Collins Cosa, who was allegedly killed by South African soldiers during the lockdown. In fact, according to an article published on the 1st of June by the Daily Maverick, it's claimed that up to 12 people have died at the hands of the police and the army force during the lockdown. So, Tinesura, I'm just noting this so that we can note the suffering the shared suffering in the world right now, the, the interconnectedness of the suffering in the world right now. And Tinesora, can you please introduce yourself to the listeners and everyone? Greetings, Mwe and Yana. It's, um, I'm very privileged and grateful to be here. Thank you for hosting this conversation. And I also felt immediately as you spoke to the depth of trauma that's exploding up into this violence and the police violence. I, I could feel some tears come to my eyes, actually. This is how, how painful this is. So thank you for that context. My name is Tanisara, and um, I have a long history and relationship with South Africa. When we were first invited, my partner Kitty Sara and I, we'd been monastics for many years. I was a nun, Buddhist nun, for 12 years, training in the forest school of Ajahn Chah. It's a Thai forest school. Um, and then I was, as when I disrobed, as a lay person, we became married. And then we were invited to become resident guiding teachers at the Buddhist retreat center in Nikopo. So um, that was in 1994. And so we got residency. And we arrived in South Africa in November 1994 and have been involved very deeply since then. And we started our own small hermitage and retreat centre in the Underberg in the southern Drakensberg. Um, and that's, we held our first month retreat, three month retreat there in the year 2000. And now that's become uh, a sanctuary, a, a sacred space for awakening processes that um, we've been guiding and supporting and teaching at. We were also deeply involved when, um, <clears throat> when the uh, when the heart of the the um, when the AIDS pandemic blew out in the late 1990s through early 2000 in co-launching and initiating a number of response projects. Um, and, you know, you talk about the police, what came to my mind is that we had a, an adopted son, really, uh, called Nkuruleko, who lived uh, with us and his family to his mother and his other brothers. And um, he so wanted to be a policeman um, that, you know, he saw that as the pinnacle he, he wanted to do. Um, it was very, in the time, it was very, very hard to, for young Zulu uh, man where we were to get work um, and he eventually did qualify and trained and he'd come very excited talking about the guns and the training he was getting and I'd always say oh please be so careful and you know he it came about that he landed up in a skirmish in Itikwini in Durban and was shot and killed um, in that skirmish he was 24 
So um, I know there's enormous police violence, but violence begets violence. You know, this both America and South Africa and the country I originally came from, Britain, which exported the, much of the colonial project around the world. These are both, you know, what we call South Africa is really a modern country, as is America, the last few hundred years, born on ancient land that were born from violence. Um, so I'm just sitting here, even as I say that, and I can feel as a mindfulness practitioner, I can feel in my body um, the shock, the shock feeling from that, you know, that that's still with us. That still resonates on personally. And then we're looking at it in these very large stories that we're deeply all wedded into of the collective trauma and suffering and violence. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Tinesura. And can you please, Tinesura, talk more about your role in social activism? Well, I think it really was uh, coming into South Africa that engaged us as what you might call social activists. I mean, before, as traditional monastics, um, we weren't monastics that were completely removed. There was a lot of interaction with our society, but it was really a lot on our terms as monastics. People came into our space to learn meditation or through the offering of food and so on. So I didn't really think about the larger systemic or historical issues. The focus of our journey at that time was in the shifts of consciousness. And I really believed and still believe that the source of all change has to come from consciousness itself. You know, this is the change factor of where we come from. We can have, the, you know, you have the most radical, fair systems like communism, really, that everyone's equal. But if the minds that infuse that system still have greed, hatred and fear, then the system becomes corrupt and oppressive as, as that system did, or capitalism's, you know, in its own way too, has become sort of cannibalistic now. You know, so it was really our encounter with the impact of the, of the AIDS pandemic um, when we saw people, and also just coming into, a, 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 you know, in the, in the mid 1990s, rural community and just seeing how decimated the communities had been by apartheid, um, how the whole country had been decimated and just taking quite a long time to understand the wounding of that in all communities. But most obvious to us was the complete and utter lack of resources within the black community and the complete displacement and uprootedness of that community and the trauma affect in that community. And then when the pandemic hit, you know, the inability, the vulnerability of that community to hold such a huge impact. So we were very then, you know, at first we were responding individually what people we knew needed. And then we realized we need to try and figure out a more systemic response. So we, we started to co-initiate projects and um, you know, get what we could do was to actually get fundraise to get funds, you know, from our contacts overseas, then help guide and and support the emergence of a number of, of projects, um, and then try and do what we could. But it always felt very inadequate. But that was a really big initiation. So I would say we were initiated into social activism in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And then that didn't really stop there. And, you know, I think more recently, my involvement has been around, 
engaging in activism around climate issues and then um you know whether it's marches or whether it's um doing various actions you know i spent time at at standing rock which was an indigenous-led action which was very very informative in my thinking i think because the indigenous elders led that action as a ceremony you know when we think of actions on we think of going out there with protests and banners and and there was all of that you know and confronting and you know sort of facing off against military or police power and there's very definitely a dimension of activism which is around that piece but the idea that activism and how the elders of the indigenous community framed it as a prayer as a ceremony so every day began with two three hours and it's freezing it's in north dakota you know it's very very cold you stand for hours in these long long ceremonial processes and then going to the river, the Missouri, which is all about stopping the pipeline going under the river. And then another hour is making offerings to the spirits of the river, the spirits of the land. So this began to open me to a, a deeper indigenous understanding of activism. You know, and, and you're not just out there as a, as a hero type on the front line, but you're connecting with the spirits and the ancestors and the elemental spirits and the, the water spirits and you know and then I you know just felt like a, a, a power from a whole different place and you I could feel you know these are a group of people that have been doing this for 500 years since they were impacted by the colonial project at the beginnings of the American the starting of the United States you know in southern America and all around the globe but they had kept these these very ancient um, truths and ways of being and, and, and ceremonies alive with the, with the interconnection with all the different realms. So, you know, so that's, that's also informed my, my understanding a lot too. And, and, and then getting us became very involved in, you know, helping. I, I wrote a book called Time to Stand Up for Buddhists, Practitioners. You know, let's get off our mats. You know, with climate, where this is a threat to all existence. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, trying to also bring the meditative, you know, the the Buddha himself set a precedent. It was, it was a radical. You know, he was radical. Actually, he challenged the caste system. He challenged abuse of animals. He challenged place of women and changed them. Changed it in his order. And he wasn't, you know, people tried to kill him. He wasn't liked for all of that, but it's not without precedent in the Buddhist lineage. It's not that it's just sitting in a, in a hut somewhere. You know, he was out there confronting the system. So, Tanisara, I'd just love to speak after what you're saying. It sounds like such a beautiful synthesis of this question that we came to this podcast with, where there was this inquiry into how might we put mindfulness and activism in one connected space like sometimes mindfulness can be critiqued for being navel gazing or to be disconnected from reality Um, but through your own story and the way that you speak it just sounds like there's such a integration of your activism and your capacity to feel and respond and it sounds like the way that you're speaking it's almost like you're your practice 
has woken you up to what you need to do. And so yes. coming to South Africa, it was like you, you were open to, to step into what was being called for. And then that journey has progressed. And so I'd love to know um, how for yourself you would relate these two threads in a, in a way of the, the practice and the, the drawing in and the action and the moving out. Yeah, I think that's put very beautifully because it is like an in-breath and an out-breath, you know. And I think what I've observed that a lot of activists can get very caught in a trauma cycle where you're out there and they're very activated by the enormity of what they're confronting. Um, and there's a lot of rage energy, which I'm not saying that rage, I think rage is appropriate in response to the horrors, but it's not very functional and it's not, you know, as a, an energy to move from, and it's not very safe for the person or for whoever you're coming into contact. So the inner practice, for example, with outrage and rage, you know, it needs to be honed, not repressed or ignored or, or sort of shamed, like this isn't spiritual or it's not Buddhist, you know, actually it's your immune system going, this is not appropriate, a boundary has been crossed. So you, we need to, we, you know, our bodies will feel that energy, but as a practitioner, you don't want to just be running on shock energy and trauma energy and cycling that out into the field. And it's, you know, it doesn't really, I don't think it brings about, it's understandable and I think it cracks open the shell, but it doesn't bring sustained change, I don't think. It just activates a lot of violence. So I think to distill that into clarity, I think the energy of, anger sort of burns away the dross it's like what is really important here and what am i filling around with that i don't really need to do what is my priority and that's what we need to be thinking so i think the, the fundamental shift in the navel gaze critique of mindfulness and meditation is to shift from seeing ourselves just as a person to be happier and weather which is good i'm not putting that down more and more functional and all the things that have come from meditation and mindfulness but to see that we're also part of a system and that involves responsibilities and the need to respond as, as the Buddha did himself. But how do we respond? Where do we respond from? What energy is informing our response? This is the work of the inner, the in-breath. You know, so sometimes it takes time to distill that, you know, to really, you know, retreat and to feel into and to still, what is my place? What is my particular skills? Not everyone has to be or can be on the front lines, but there are many other things, 101, 1,001 other things that can be done and should be done that we can do in our privilege. Um, and then, you know, but also not to stay, as our teacher Ajahn Chah said, you know, you don't stay in the trenches. You don't use meditation just to stay. You've got to get out. And kind of like he, I mean, he was very visceral in his images, you know, to take the bullet, so to speak, you know, you, you, you're not going to not feel stuff, you know, so I think it's fear of feeling distress, disturbance and upset is part of what keeps people locked down. When you realize that fear and distress and upset are the path, they're not off the path, then you have a whole different relationship and you realize our work then is to transmute all of that into fierce compassion to clarity to the strength that can sustain a long view 
you know, so I noticed, you know, as white people, we're now talking and ever forever in this racial paradigm where we have privilege. Um, and often what I notice myself and all of us, we get very activated, like with the George Floyd killing and so on, and the horror of that. And everyone activates and reacts, myself included, but then it drops away very quickly because we're not living in a black skin in America, which is treacherous at the moment for people of color, brown skin or Asian or indigenous. So what we can do in our privilege is to actually, and with the power of the meditative practices, is to strategize, to use that clarity and to take our time and think, what can I do that can not just sort of, you know, emote and go into a trauma cycle ourselves and deregulate, but what can I do to, to maintain well-being? There's no point being out there deregulated, regulate my system, and then use all of my privilege to undo racism. What, take that on as a project. What can I do in my near and far life, in my organizations, in everything I'm doing? to really explore how to do that strategically, coming from a more even, balanced, sustainable energy in place. So for me, that's without the inner work, the outer expression um, is less um, reliable, I think. Mm. So you, you put that beautifully, Tinesra, and I cannot help but think about my inner work, um, how it gives me clarity how it gives me clarity in these times, just yeah. pausing and sitting with the rage that is there. Because just from seeing the video, um, yeah. I, I noticed a lot of anger. So I'm referring to the video of the cop kneeling on George Floyd. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I noticed a lot of anger in myself. And yeah, there was something in me that put me on fight and flight mode and yeah. I, I caught myself on my way out of the room like there was just something off and yeah. i think you 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 talk about it beautifully when you say our bodies can pick these things up and they know when something is wrong yeah yeah no no i think i think we should just take it because i think people listening this is activating material and i'm not saying this to I'm not shutting down the conversation. We need to explore this, but I think to pace ourselves as we're having the conversation so we can just take three deepening breaths and we can do this when we get activated. So we're not trying to move away from what we're feeling, but we can breathe and bring awareness through what is felt. So we can just breathe into like now I can feel the activation in my body. I can feel my brain. I, I feel the shock effect in my brain. It deregulates and it's easy to forget what I'm going to say and disassociate. So taking, a, you know, taking some deep breaths and feel that inner the, the inhalation just suffusing. And and sometimes I mix with that inhalation, a sense of just warm, healing, golden light, or a word like uh, being present. Or it's okay just to to breathe that an intention of courage, say, for example, just to breathe that through the cells of the body and feeling the breath coming right down to the place where we touch the ground, where we feel the contact in our seat, that, that, that sensation grounds. 
And then as we breathe out, it's releasing the trauma, the shock effect, offering it back to the earth, offering it back so it can be held by the greater forces of goodness, the forces and presences of the ancestors, um, of the enlightened stream of energy, of the, of the heart itself, of the jitta, of the of awareness, which is broad and vast. So offering it up, offering it out, offering it back. This is, this is energy that's going through us, that's actually, it's personal, but it's collective. So when we do these breaths, when we breathe in, soothing, calming, regulating, breathe out, letting go, releasing, we're actually, what we're actually doing is also transmuting energy that's in the field, in the collective, as well as in our personal body, that we feel it in our personal body. You know, it's, it's, this is talking, we're talking about violence and historical violence and oppression and the ripple on trauma effect of that. Um, and so in the practice with mindfulness, mindfulness is the container. You know, mindfulness is like, if you're going to hone a diamond, you do it under great pressure and fire. To, in, in the same way, our hearts that become indestructible, they're like a diamond. The pressure is honing us. You know, so mindfulness can actually, mindful presence, awareness can contain all of these energies without being shaped by them and creating a sense of self shaped by that energy or without acting out. The middle way between that fight and freeze, but it has to be through what's felt, you know, to feel the feeling, as it says in the second foundation of mindfulness, you just feel the feeling, this feels like this, rather than adding the big story. Uh, in that way, it starts to integrate and process and regulate. So, like, just from that practice, I'm just in touch with clarity and spaciousness, and I, I notice how I get that from the practice itself, and I move away from the reactivity and more to the response, and from that spaciousness and clarity and then the spaciousness more especially is, is is a container as you are saying uh, i'm able to be with the suffering at the time because the rage that is there the anger that is there is very difficult to sit with but um after sitting down and practicing i notice that there's space for it and when there is space for it i, I can be with it and from that space going forward, I'm able to engage with others about what's going on and coming up with actions that we can take together against yeah. um, the suffering and the violence that's happening out mm -hmm. there. So just wanted to share that clarity and spaciousness that I'm in touch with even now. And something that I've actually learned from mindfulness, and it's something that is very, very difficult to articulate, especially with my friends, because there's mm. this perception, as Yana was saying, of mindfulness being passive and being more of navel gazing and not looking outward. So it's it's very difficult to articulate it to someone who doesn't practice because yeah. it's embodied in the body and it's also it's more felt. Mm. 
And Mbui, as you say that it's, and you speak of the clarity and the spaciousness, I, I, the image that you offered, Sinatra, of the diamond comes, comes into view. And it's, it was so fascinating to feel the process of the, the dysregulation which came as you were speaking, Mbui. Um, and it feels like I kind of go into this haziness above my head of fragmentation. And it's like, the feeling has to pass through me, through my body, so that I can re-access a longer view. But if I skip that step, my view is clouded. So it's almost like this, it has to move through my, my system. It has to drain through my system. And I loved what you offered to Nursery because it felt like it, it's not just me. It's not just my body. It's the earth. And it's everybody mm. and it's a process of yeah uh, allowing the the actual feeling to bring us back into contact with the prayer for something different and you spoke about how the at standing rock the the activism was an act of prayer and it, it was reminding me of a beautiful understanding of prayer that I don't know if either of you have read Charles Eisenstein's work, um, but yeah. he was talking about a prayer being like an imprint that we create. We hold a vision or we hold an understanding of a different kind of reality. Uh, and, and in that holding of the image we create the possibility of that reality to magnetize into that imprint mm, so we yeah. almost call forth or bring out the future mm. Um, mm. and prayer is quite inaccessible for me when i'm in a dysregulated state mm. um, because my my eyes feel closed and my mm. heart feels closed so yeah well, to me. Uh, well i think i think you have to i think um you know Moye and yana what you're both talking about and what i'm feeling too actually sitting here um i think we have to understand that uh, we have to take care as well when we feel that deregulation and rage and those disassociation and it's like it's it's a bit like a, a a red light going off to say your system's under stress, and it's going. These are very old historical stories that live within us epigenetically as well that have handed down through generations. So this is very rough material, um, and so we have to just recognize we might be functional in the way we think we should be, like you just get going on and keeping on to say this is happening. How can I first you know take care of myself a bit. And that also in activism, you can also feel like you're not allowed to do that. You've got to be out there, you know, where you've got to be suffering or you've got, but I think this permission to, and this is one of the beauties of the Dharma and the mindfulness practice is, is, you know, to, 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 what do I need? I need to slow down. Maybe I can't even do a sitting practice. Maybe I need to take a walk. Maybe I need to, um, you know, I, I do a lot of deep in breath work to help me regulate the system more quickly. 
Um, you know, maybe I need to talk to a friend. And I think that was the other piece I was feeling around this trauma response as it's happening in our body is to reach out that we shouldn't be doing this alone. We shouldn't be holding. And and we don't have to, and Boya, when you were take it, talking also about um, the difficulty with friends, the language can be off-putting, you know. But just to say something like, how are you feeling? You know, and how can we work with our feeling? You know, so that we're not having to sell the mindfulness package, but we're just connecting with people, you know, and, and through that process, being able to, people will feel, they'll start to feel, and then they might ask, well, what are you doing? You know, so I think this taking care and to understand that um, we are, in some ways, we are conduits for transformation. I think that the, the work of Charles Eisenstein um, is very profound, the bringing in of the new story. But in a way, we can't, I think many of us that are in these sort of spiritual worlds would like the new story to arrive without really understanding we've got you know we've got to clean up the mess first you know that or it comes together both are happening but you know this and this is the mess it's this is the this is we're living through the karmic result we're feeling it in our bodies it's activating everywhere of a 500 year colonial project which created a hierarchy of power around race, around gender, around class, around um, everything, you know, a pyramid of power, and has struck, everything has been structured and it's been internalized deeply. So that is being uprooted. You know, it looks violent, it looks terrible, but actually what's happening is we've been given our curriculum. It's like this now is our curriculum. You know, we have to deal with this you know maybe we weren't the causal people in it but it's it's our ancestry was certainly it's white people but you know there's there's a responsibility in this but we can't do that again if we're just activated but i do think in the in the midst of all of the activation and trauma and the enormity i feel something quite hopeful you know i feel that there's a tipping point beginning to happen around some of these issues where more and more those that are holding rigidly to the dominant, you know, the dominator mode, <laughs> the white supremacist mode that we see here in, in, in the politics of, of America, and the sheer ugliness of it, the viciousness, the sadism of it, you know, it's all in front view. You can't not see that. So I think, you know, we're seeing how desperate it is now for those trying to hold on. And we're seeing this tipping point emerging more and more where there's more of a collective shift beginning to happen. People are seeing and they're, you know, at home in this COVID time, it's time to really reflect and see and look at where we, you know, where are we coming from? What's needed for this new world? So I feel some, you know, it's, a, it's not a good story in so many ways, but the hope is in that uh, transformation that we're in, that we're conduits for this transformation. And in that, there's a shift happening of, of, for me, I experience it as an inner shift that's orientating around a different place, almost in my being. It's not being quite orientated from the old brain, those old paradigms, but it's into a more fluid, open place where, where it's like anything can happen now. I'm up for anything, you know. It's all up for question. There's a sense of freedom. It's, 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 and it's like a quantum energy. Things can shift, things can move, and they are moving. 
and there's a there's a real tangible inner guidance in a sense of intuitive guidance you know it's not there's not some authority looking down you know judging and what's good what it's like it, it's moving from that empowerment from within and deepening into that empowerment so that's also happening in the midst of this train wreck that we're in there's something freeing being freed up and it is wild because we haven't got a map for it you know the old maps are like well but they don't quite fit now even the languaging that we're using, maybe of mindfulness and Buddhism, you know, it's like, well, you know, maybe that has to also change. You know, it's, everything's changing very fast. So there's something very fluid and opening as well in that space. So we, we have to track that and be here enough to do it. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. I feel like as you speak, it's 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 very it makes a lot of sense and it's it's so welcome because not a lot makes sense right now but it's it feels like almost a dream like reality yeah. um, and as you were speaking i was feeling how there's also a sense of people are more vulnerable people are being rendered more vulnerable because it's like the coloring in books lines have been rubbed out yeah. in parts and the colors are all leaking a bit and we're having to dig deeper for a sense of stability. And it's interesting because then you were saying there's, there's no maps. Um, but at the same time, I've, I've personally felt like now more than ever, I'm turning towards the, the practices that I feel very lucky to have encountered previously. And they are helping me the most to kind of regulate and, so my, my yoga practice and my mindfulness practice have become a kind of map. That's the word I've been using. Yeah, but I'm curious definitely. about what you say about the languaging. Um, and also you spoke about earlier um, about the Buddha being radical and, and you're talking about your book. And yeah, how have you kind of found these threads of radicalism in the old texts and and when you speak about a new language how can what was what has been written or what has been known be pulled into this present moment if well that's that really sense. yeah i know it does those are really big questions there's a lot to say in there and i want to make it succinct so we can you know i, I don't just i want to have a conversation rather but you know i'm also coming from a 40-year entrenchment in a certain traditional context so that's um, a context that's actually extremely patriarchal. Buddhism is patriarchal. And so the languaging, and I talk to this somewhat in my book, is not feminized. And I notice that maybe in the feminine, and I don't want to over-genderize, um, you know, how people understand and feel themselves to be around the feminine and masculine principles. Um, and, you know, and even that's categorizing language. So... <laughs> But there is, there is patriarchy and Buddhism is patriarchal and all the languaging and all the lineages is very masculine. So one of the things I, I look at is how there was a big part of me that had to free myself from Buddhism itself, even though I'm using it exactly as you say, as the most extraordinary map of consciousness and, and awakening. And I have great respect and deference for that and always will but there are places it didn't serve and confused. You know, where, you know, for example, 
You know, if you look at the depth feminine within the masculine as well, this is not just about women and men. It's about principles that live and need to be in balance in both of us. And we live in a very masculine orientated world, especially the colonial and frontier worlds. You know, it's, it's very tough and, and guarded and, and, and sort of armored. That's the sort of body patterning. Um, and then if you're the one being oppressed, then it's very unrooted and and dominant you know it's it's the sense of being made vulnerable all the time so these are deep patternings we hold um, and there has to be a middle way of finding what is our energy outside of these patterning what does our energy feel like you know when it's not locked into these old patterns that we hold so deeply in our bodies and for me the feminine was even the way enlightenment is sometimes couched like it's something that you attain it's something that you you penetrate into it's quite sort of almost sexual language you know you, you sort of you know you break through and you you crash through and you overcome and you dominate you know it's, it's <laughs> and i think the internal experience of the feminine is an opening more it's an opening into what is there you know and i think for the feminine it feels often feels confused because there's not an understanding that that formless experience internally you know, often the feminine is looking for direction from the masculine because it doesn't trust its own formlessness. So the languaging doesn't help that. But if the languaging says, actually, the depth feminine already is a conduit and the receptacle of the, you know, it's the, a, the womb of awareness. You know, this language, you know, and it's actually from the original Pali, Yoni Somani Sakara, which means it's like put everything into the womb of awareness which is different than sort of like I'm practicing mindfulness to control something, you know, to moderate, you know, even to regulate myself. And there is, that's very good, you know, in the science of all of that. And that's brilliant. But it comes from a certain Western paradigm of how we understand the world. You know, so these are just, I'm not saying I've got a conclusion, but these are inquiry places for me. And so when I understand that actually in the depth feminine, the depth feminine has already arrived. It doesn't need to break through and crash through and penetrate anything. It is the fundamental ground. And I'm not saying that as gender, but as the fundamental principle of awareness. And yet it's not trusted because it's not formed and it looks like it's not enough. So I find a lot of women in particular in the, in the Dharma realm are very unconfident because it's hard to trust in, the, you know, their experience in a paradigm that's been mapped out in the masculine metaphor. You know? So that, that's just one example of languaging and how, and, and then, you know, I don't know, I'm not in an African skin, I'm not black, I'm not a person of colour, but there's going to be ways from the culture, you know, I talked to at the conference a bit, you know, the sense of ancestry, the sense of the way one feels oneself to be, perhaps part more of a community than individual than an individual ego in the way that the western conditioning is so em emphasizes so strongly so what would that lang that languaging might need to to have the confidence to explore what does the formless inner awakened impulse how does that become languaged and in these days we have to be multilingual you know to cross barriers 
you know, so my Christian friends, I talk about maybe Christ, you know, or to the Islamic friends, you know, talking in a different way. So, um, so there's fluidity. And I think what tends to happen, there's a sort of a, a doctrine that almost becomes the truth rather than the inexperience. This is the way we have to talk about. If you use the word soul in Buddhism, it's like, there's no soul, you know, and it's like, well, actually, there is equivalent. Yeah. You know, the jitta, the deep jitta that carries and holds all the latent tendencies, the anusaya of consciousness is, is a soul. You know, so, so you know, these, way, these sort of dogmas that come in, so I think I'm making, I don't know, I, I guess I'm making a plea for being moved from the intuitive inside and allowing that to inform, not to crash or not to disregard the structures and the maps, but to realize there's something more alive. Our teacher, Ajahn Chah, would call it the living dharma. That's not a book. That's not the map. It's media. It's here. It's talking to you now. It's, it's unfolding here in reality. Mm. Can we trust that? And that's the dharma in you know here and now so mm. um we are running out of time and just Ooh. just a comment from me uh, as you were talking tenisura is that it's it's very difficult to to be here now in these times because there's a lot of information out there there's a lot of information that is pulling one out of the present moment like, for instance, just with the coronavirus, I've noticed that there are lots of conspiracy theories. And I was sharing in one of the podcasts that it's these conspiracy theories like that also pull me out of what's happening. Or it's a place that I go to when I'm avoiding or denying what's happening right now. And that most of the time being just um, sitting with discomfort. So there, there seems to be a lot of comfort in finding conspiracy theories online. And I've noticed how that takes me out of the present moment, which is what is happening right now. It is a place that's very, very different from the clarity that I was talking about. And I don't know if you have anything to say to that, uh, because with social media and the internet, that means everyone has got a voice. That means there are lots of theories. Even with this George Floyd situation, um, there are already theories um, saying, claiming that the Black Lives Matter movement has been hijacked. It's not really about George Floyd. And yeah, so theories like that, they can take one out of what's happening right now. Do you have anything to say around that before we close? Yeah, well, again, it's, this, is a, this is a really important area. And, you know, what's real and what's not, this is the, one of the dynamics of our time. You know, and there's so much false, falseness. Um, and also just historically, you know, the 10 years of the, the height of the, the, the AIDS pandemic we lived through, when there was deep governmental denial, deep denial, Things got really strange in that era, you know, all sorts of conspiracies and weird things. So I think when human beings can't, they're not on their map, talking of maps anymore, um, and there's been historic um, governmental abuse and there's a lack of trust in how power has been held, then people just go all over the place 
and, and, and as you say, the, the social media inflames that because it's such an immediate buzz and hit and connection. And there's an addictive part of it too, I notice in myself, in the brain. So, you know, I think there's various things around. And there's a, polit- I mean, all of this COVID, like in America, has been weaponized and politicized and weaponized. And, you know, so there's, there is these forces that are, you know, you have to sort of read the, the larger intention here. What, where's this coming from? What's the intention? What's the source of information? You know, and what's the, what's the intention behind it? How's it being used? And what are they, what's the manipulation in it? And what's, you know, so you have to keep discerning. You want to keep a lot of discernment going, you know, um, to really filter this through. And I think checking with people you trust as well, you know, it's like having allies. And all of this, we have to have togetherness. We can't just be out there swimming these oceans on our own, you know, to, to keep checking and to keep your discernment and to keep your inner sense of, of what's true and you know and to look at for me you know there's you know there's also look at reputable scientists for example around covid and epidemiologists you know that, that work in this field you know <laughs> um and that have a reputable history but you know all of this we have to discern for ourselves ultimately as well you know so and and there's a place when it's like um kitty Sarah and i just took a news fast for a week you know just before george floyd's hit you know um and it was really important just to, to sometimes just go that's it. And, it and it really freed up a lot of energy because there are other worlds going on here the world of nature the world of of love, the world of poetry, the world of beauty, the world, you know, and so we don't have to just be stuck on the social media thread, you know, um, to resource ourselves. So then when we come back to try and, you know, what we're trying to do is moderate how we engage. I'm not very good at it because I've been very activated around and, and had to find a response for our community and want to find a response. But it also takes time to to integrate what that response is, you know, to really consider the all of these conspiracy. You know, I think we have to have a, a working knowledge of the field. What are the conspiracies? What are they out there to consider and to look? And so you're not just kind of cutting them off, but then you start to distill what's true for me. What's true, what feels really, and what are the what are people, you know, that we would trust, that we look to, uh, you know, what is their, what are they saying as well? So you start to form a picture and a worldview that feel this lands well for me and can guide me, you know, so that we're not just being hijacked. As you speak, you were making these shapes with your hand of kind of drawing in and I was reminded of the womb image of earlier and how, as you speak, it's like, and also in response to what Mboyu was saying about the tendency to be pulled out and are we willing to drop into the darkness of the womb and wait for something to gestate? And Mm, it feels like that's kind of the the process of this practice of allowing something to rise up, a very different feeling to the reaching and the attaining, um, which can come from a discomfort or can come from a mistrust. And so I really appreciate that you brought in that deep feminine way because it feels like it is a really helpful image to remind 
I can speak for myself, you know, in those times where it is just dark and it is just unknown and confusing and heavy, that there's something, there's some kind of potential in that. Mm, thank you for that. I think you really went more to the essence of the work. I think I think we're in a in a womb of you know this new world being born, and we haven't we it's it's right we don't have a map because the old maps don't serve, and can we tolerate that deep unknown space and not get distracted or go into a pattern of distraction or uh, fidgeting or you know old down our old fault lines, because that is the place of potentiality where we hear, where we hear the truth, we hear a truer voice, a truer impulse. So thank you for bringing that uh, and deepening that peace. I think you're absolutely, for me that feels, when you say that, that feels like a good place for us to arrive at. In this conversation, it's okay not to know. It's okay to wait until the new, it's okay, you know, more the, the, the new, the sense of how to move emerges for us. It will come, it, it comes, you know. So it's okay not to have an opinion, you know. In fact, it's more than okay. It's, it feels like that's the curriculum of, 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 what, of the whole coronavirus initiation. I see it as an initiation, actually. Stopped us, you know, stopped the world. It's huge. We can't even see it. And yet this thing stopped us radically. Yeah, thanks a lot for those words, uh, Tinesura. And yeah, that's stopping and seeing if we can see it with the confusion and the lack of clarity and the not knowing, as you are saying. That's all the work of, of the practice, the inner breath, as you put it, when we started. So with, with all of that said, um, I'd like to thank you for taking time out to get into this conversation with us. And I don't know if you have any last words to share with our listeners before we close the podcast. Well, I want to both uh, thank you so, so much, Nguye and Yana and uh, the Mindfulness Institute and all the wonderful work that's happening there. Um, I feel very heartened to know this work and I feel very heartened by the depth of this conversation we've had together and everything that you're bringing and we've been brought together. I have a deep, deep um, affinity and love um, for South Africa. It lives in my being. I also feel the trauma of it, to tell you the truth. Um, it lives also in my being. But I feel it's a, it's a country that both holds um, such a range um, for the most, you know, coming out of the colonial apartheid oppressions that impacted everyone and then trying to find its birth in its new way. I just sort of want to cheer on everyone, you know, because there's also this, this very difficult history and yet there's, there's this sort of this, this experience, I have experience of people and coming forth with amazing energy and potential and activism, you know, it has a history of activism, a deep history that's gone on that one can draw on. And I think this mindfulness, you know, it is our time. We are being called to, to come off the cushion, to use the cushion, but not just to stay there and just to, to take this work now. We, you know, we take this work now 
into our communities even more, deepen and commit even more to to undoing racism, even more deeper to systemic change and to see how we are conditioned internally uh, as well, you know, all of us by these old structures and we must free ourselves now. You know, we must free ourselves. It's done, this old story we've done, you know, it's like, don't keep dragging this carcass now. You know, let's do our work. And we've all got maybe different works to do in our different communities. But let's be done and and, and do the work and, and help birth really the new South Africa that's trying to be born now for so long, more fully, more fully, more beautifully in its potential, in its radiance. So thank you for the opportunity to touch base. Thank, thank you so much, Tennis Ra. Mm. Yana, do you have any closing remarks, any closing words? I feel like uh, the fire in my heart gets fanned with the words that you just spoke and the sense of the creative potential in destruction and how the fire burning reveals something more truthful um, in its wake. And mm. so I'm feeling very activated in a good way right now um, from mm. this conversation. It doesn't feel like an ending at all, but maybe like a little squeeze or a pulse as mm. we now move on with this conversation, which really just continues and moves through all the different spaces. And it feels like such a gift to be able to have conversations at the edge of my understanding, at the edge of what I know. I stepped into this container not knowing what was going to come through. Mm. And so thank you both for holding the space that allowed for such a rich experience that has changed me in some way, as good mm. conversations do. So mm. 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 Thank, thank you for what you thought and both of you are so rich and so profound. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tinisara. Thank you, Yana. And thank you to all the listeners. And I hope you are going to enjoy this conversation.